Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints Podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Hi, I'm Steve Morrison from Sandy, Utah, and I currently serve as a bishop there. And Leading Saints has been a big benefit to me and my calling and previous callings as well to uh, help me better understand how I can serve the, the members of my ward. It's not always easy as we're in our callings to, to serve and, and help our, our members. There's a lot of challenges that they go through, and sometimes we need a little bit of help to uh, understand how to help them. And I've really appreciated everything Kurt and, and his team has done to uh, help me in that calling and, and do a better job as a bishop. So thanks, Kurt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. Can you hear it? I don't know if it's picking up on the mic, but downstairs, my family is dancing in the kitchen to Boom Chikaraka. So I got to finish up this intro so that I can get down there and jive with them as well. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, we are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through uh, content creation, through this podcast, through a weekly newsletter we send out, through virtual conferences, through live conferences, through a website. You can go to leadingsaints.org to see all the details and to jump in. Do you know we actually publish the top six most downloaded episodes on the homepage? So if you need a good place to start, those top six would be great. And speaking of uh, top 10, top six episodes that'll be downloaded, man, we've had some We've had some great episodes the last few weeks, and uh, Jeff Mask, the individual you're about to hear that I interviewed, will most likely end up in that that top 10. Just a heavy hitter, great leader, individual, and coach who uh, I had the opportunity of sitting down and, and firing some questions at. And Jeff Mask is, a, is actually a, a coach of CEOs. That's right. That's all he does. He coaches CEOs. And so when I was first introduced to uh, Jeff Mask, but thanks a lot, Landon Pitcher, that's right. You're out there. I'm talking to you. He's uh, recommended some great people to the podcast. When I was first introduced to Jeff, I knew that uh, after talking with him, I, man, this guy probably has a lot to share. And uh, from his experience of coaching executives, and uh, I was not disappointed. Really great concept. This is maybe one you'll want to listen to a couple times just to absorb the different tactics and strategies that he shares, but uh, really powerful for leaders out there, especially those that feel like an executive running an organization. So here we go. My interview with Jeff Mask. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down in person. That doesn't happen very often with Jeff Mask. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Cool. So we were connected through, we got to give uh, Landon a, a shout out because he is, uh, he's recommended a few guests and most people don't even know who Landon is, but he's a bishop in Lehigh and he's a listener and he recommended that we connect and We've had a great conversation, and which led to this uh, this conversation. So, give us a short introduction to you. What what do people need to know about Jeff? That I love people. 
And uh, I love Landon. He was great connecting us. I've loved your podcast. And I believe I'm on this planet to help invite more people to come into Christ. That's awesome. And whatever medium I have to do that, that's why I exist. And so when people ask you what you do for a living, what do you say? Well, I coach CEOs to help them confidently grow their business without losing their soul, nice. which then makes people <laughs> go, what are you talking about? But too often I've seen businesses succeed and, and business leaders succeed in spite of what is most important to them. And frankly, a few years ago, I had a really strong impression to change what I was doing. And the clear thought came to me, too many businesses succeed at the expense of families, and I'm not okay with that. Yeah. And I thought, neither am I. Yeah. And so I thought, well, what can I do to help with that? And here I am. Yeah. And I mean, it would seem like to, to coach CEOs, you have to be like a CEO many times over. But I mean, what was your career path to, to coaching CEOs? Yeah, great question. I had never been an official CEO. And so for sure, there was some doubt and imposter syndrome of who am I to do this. Yeah. But I had worked with and grown other companies. I had been in the startup world. I had been in a Fortune 50 company. I had, you know, earned an MBA and all the, all the stuff that might help. But really, none of that matters if I can't really tap into what truly matters in my purpose on this earth. And then how do I extract that from the people that I'm coaching? And yeah. I had to get over the, yeah, I'd never been a CEO, but I knew I could coach CEOs because I know my purpose with that. Yeah. So, so this is a dynamic I'm, I'm curious about, I want to dig into a little bit, because there are times when, you know, a high council, well, a high counselor assigned to a ward and the stake president says, well, you're, you got to, you know, go coach this bishop and help him and, mm -hmm. and be there. And he thinks, well, I've never been a coach or I've never been a, a bishop. So right. how I don't, how do I even do that? And, and I would imagine walking in with some of these successful CEOs, there's sort of this feeling of like, you know, what do I have to say to you? So how do you get through that so that, that that's an appropriate coaching relationship? Recognize the source of my power mm. and that it's God. When he works through me, it really doesn't matter what worldly title we put on ourselves. When we know that we're working in his hands, all things are possible. And it requires faith to do that. It reminds me of a story where my dad was a seminary teacher for years, amazing teacher. He taught me in ninth grade. And it was awesome. Though we were worried day one, we didn't know if it would go, go <laughs> poorly or go well. But right away, we knew it'd go well after he started teaching. Anyway, he was called to be a mission president and was called to talk to bishops and stake presidents as well. And he's like, I've, I've never been a bishop or stake president. But he realized he knew his mantle, he knew his calling, he knew his keys, and he relied on the Lord to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing in, in a ward. It's, it's the same thing in a work setting in many regards, because in my mind, everything's spiritual and the Lord wants us to all grow closer to him. So lean on him and yeah. figure it out. And do you have any routines or practices, reading or things you do to just help keep your skill set sharp there. I mean, because there is, I appreciate that, you know, just sort of stepping into that confidence, relying on the Lord. But then today, sometimes <laughs> you did, it may not have anything to drop on, right? For sure. Yeah. So I knew I'd be coaching CEOs more than 15 years ago when I was with my brother, who was the CEO of a company that we were growing together. And he had just started coaching with a CEO coach. And he told me, yeah, I'm coaching with so-and-so. And I thought, Wow, actually, so-and-so's name is Steve Hardison, and he's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I thought in that moment, I remember where I was standing, what the walls looked like, and I said to him, that's me. Huh. I'm going to coach someday, and I'm going to coach CEOs to help them. And he looked at me, and he said, totally. You're, you're born to do this. But back to your question, yeah. I intentionally 
decided not to do it then because I wanted in the trenches work. Mm. I wanted to know what it's like to really build a business. Strategy and books and education are great, but strategy and books and education alone without tactical in the trenches, I just got punched in the face experience. It's really tough. And so I, I did that with multiple companies and grew them and helped them, learned, got my face bloody multiple times, made many mistakes to where it gave me the confidence to realize I can do this. Then in addition, always be reading. Just I believe leaders are readers. Readers are leaders and leaders are readers. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can read and learn and be humble to learn what else is out there, the better. So that that's definitely something that's out there for me and my routine. Also, all aspects of my life when it comes to how Christ grew in stature and favor with God and man, everything, right? Physically, spiritually, mentally, always being sharp on that. So exercising regularly eating as healthy as possible, though sugar is still my addiction and I'm working on that. <laughs> We're at the right recovery meeting here. This is good. I know that's a drug and I know it's mine and I'm yeah. doing, doing my best there. I'm listening to podcast years being one of them as well. I love HBR a lot. I like their articles. I, I look at their and that's studies. Something you, that's Harvard Business Review, right? Correct. Sorry. And, yes. and that's something you subscribe to, right? Yes. I've, yeah, you can do a couple things. You can follow them on their social channels and read that. And then you get two free ones a month if, uh, of their articles. Okay. Or if you subscribe, you can get, you know, however many you'd like. And then business school was really helpful for me. I, I went to an international business school for global business to help grow businesses, obviously, internationally. The frameworks that I learned there and the structure and strategy was really helpful. And actually, I apply almost daily in my coaching business mm -hmm. today. So all the above. But Simplified, the bottom line is if I'm going to coach and get the best out of people, I have to be my best. There's just a lack of integrity if I'm a horrible husband or a, you know, a, a deadbeat dad mm -hmm. or my spirituality is waning and I'm not really doing the little things of praying with fervency and frequency and studying the scriptures and gleaning what the Lord wants me to learn. So I love that about it it pushes me to be my best. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, as far as helping CEOs not, you know, run effective companies, but, but not lose their their soul mm -hmm. in the process. Mm -hmm. And that is interesting because I know that there are leaders out there who, and we think of these, these callings as bishop or as a relief study president, you know, these are supposed to be sanctifying callings, uplifting. You see miracles. I mean, I've been there. It's, it's awesome. But you can lose your soul in these callings. Uh, and so maybe unpack that. What do you mean by losing their soul? Like, what does that look like in the CEO context? And maybe we can find some nuggets there. It's a few things. I'm glad you asked. One, it's losing sight of the big picture. Why are we doing what we're doing in the first place? So getting really clear on your why and your purpose, previous podcast episodes that you mm -hmm. had, I think are great. It's also the principle of temperance in all things and learning, you know, Yes, our church callings are super important. Yes, the way that we provide for our families is important. But if that's all we do, and we do it in the disguise of for a bigger reason, but we get lost in that reason, or we get lost in the means to that overall end, that's where slowly but surely and subtly, we start to just deviate a little bit. And it's a one degree off. It's not a wake up one day and all of a sudden, nothing's true anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to live anymore. It's more often than not, slowly, surely down the path. I mean, it's the classic gospel principle of staying true, holding to the rod every day and, and holding fast to it. And if and when we let go, which we do, everybody does, 
get back really quickly. Mm-hmm. And like I, I like to say, repent quickly and completely, as fast as possible and as completely as possible, and get back on the path. Mm-hmm. And then you're set. So it's losing, losing sight of the big picture and it's allowing ourselves to get so consumed, what, whatever that may be. And sometimes we tell ourselves, well, it's a church calling and this is what the Lord wants me to do. And now I'm going to do this at the expense of my family. And now they're alienated. I don't think that's mm-hmm. what the Lord wants. We also say in our careers, well, I'm, I'm doing this so my kids can have a better life than I had. Mm-hmm. And we kind of give ourselves little misguided truths that are sort of there, but it's a little manipulated and a little bit contrived to where we lose sight of what really matters. And it requires discipline to stay on a steady, consistent, harmonious path versus being so myopic on one certain aspect of life. Whether that's something spiritual or secular, the same problem can happen. Yeah. So what are the typical like habits you see a CEO doing when when they begin to lose the big picture or when you kind of see them spiraling yeah. uh, where they may not even realize what's happening? Totally. Right? It's the little things. It's their morning routine slipping. And morning routines can be some type of spiritual practice, meditation, prayer, study of scripture, regardless of religion. I, I coach CEOs around the world of all sorts of walks of life and all different levels of, of faith and what, what they believe as a higher power. But it's whatever that, that level of spirituality is, they start to lose that by not doing the consistent hygienic exercises, I call them, mm-hmm. just like brushing your teeth, right? So that's one thing. Another thing they start to do is they start to let fear subconsciously rule their decisions and their behaviors. And it's very, very subtle and so subconscious, we don't realize that fear is the, mo- the great motivator. And when they can get clear in their mindset, when fear is either subtly or overtly channeling our thoughts and our behaviors, then they can get back on a path that they want to be on. Mm. So it's simple things in the morning and it's overarching letting fear replace faith. But when faith can be the more powerful motivator and even deeper love, when those two things are in check, more often than not, that gives them the guardrails left and right to stay on a steady path. Yeah. When it comes to fear, I mean, I've imagined these are things like if I make a decision as a CEO, I mean, this is the buck stops here, right? And and things could be go sour. A lot of people lose their job. I may lose my job. And so, is I mean, is it usually those those big decisions that uh, they get hyper focused on those? Usually, probably strong. Commonly, yes, but not not as majority. It's more the subtle things, and you would think. Well, CEOs don't have these fears, but they do because they're human. And these fears are the same fears most humans have. Mm-hmm. I am fearful of not being good enough. I am fearful of failure and define failure however you want, want to define it. I'm f- fearful of rejection, of not being liked. And that that's normal. And so like, think about it. When you think, man, if this big deal doesn't close, if we don't close this round of capital, if whatever it is, what rules is if not then... And the fear comes in and scarcity comes in. And when we're fearful, the lowest part of our brain function is firing. Mm -hmm. When we're full of faith, abundance and creation can happen. And that's the executive level of our brain that can happen or can really start, start working for us. And so fear starts to get really unruly. And you would think, well, as a CEO, you're not fearful of failure. Actually, more often than not, that's why they've attained the success they've had because they don't want to fail. Mm. And they were either really smart in school or got made fun of a lot. 
And so there's something to prove and they want that acceptance of humankind Mm. and they mask it behind other, you know, material achievements and accolades that help bolster up their ego to say, I'm enough. I've got this. But if it's not on a foundation that's enduring, it can crumble. And that's the fear that really rules and affects them. And the reason why I focus on CEOs is because they have the greatest influence on, on an organization than anybody else. And so I, I want to work with them to help bless the lives of everyone they lead and their customers and partners and shareholders so that more lives can be blessed. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So that, you know, with this word acceptance, when it fear, cause again, it's not necessarily that they're afraid that the company's going to blow up. Right. They're more afraid of like, what if they don't want me? What mm-hmm. if I do fail? And, and it's shown maybe who I really am. Right. right. And I, I see that, you know, in, in the church dynamic as well as that, you know, well, God called me here. Yeah. And if I don't run this ward, well, not only will I not be accepted by those I lead, but maybe God will sort of be disappointed of how I, I'm leading. But it really is those, you think of dynamic leaders, it's those leaders that maybe stepped out of the box a little bit, who pushed the envelope, who broke the unwritten rules and those types of things. But that, right. you have to let go of that fear in order to go there, right? Definitely, definitely. And there, there's a vulnerability and a humility and a courage combined all together that helps us recognize what is the true motive. And mm-hmm. when love can be the true motive, not fear, the better. But when you tell people, well, there's a fear element, they go, no, I'm not scared. What are you talking about? Especially an alpha, right? Mm-hmm. An alpha female, an alpha male, you tell them they're scared and they'll punch you in the face, maybe, maybe <laughs> right, right. proverbially, right? <laughs> but it's, it levels down. And so what I like to do to help uncover that versus telling someone you're scared, that, that doesn't help through a series of questions, it helps them get to a place. So I, I do this thing called the five layers of why and ask five layers. And this comes from product development back in the day to mm-hmm. figure out what does a customer really want? Instead of taking what they want at face value, ask five layers why they want that to really get to the root. So I want to do X, well, why? So I can do this, why? And you, what you do is just say why five layers down and more often than not in human behavior, it's something fear-based that's prohibiting someone from really moving toward where they want to go. It's fascinating. And it's really simple, but yet complex at the same time if we don't allow ourselves to ask those questions. What advice would you give to the the subordinates, we could call them, who have the leader who it's obvious that they are micromanaging from a place of fear or they are not delegating from a place of fear. And, you know, I get those emails of individuals who say, you know, I I, I don't uh, I don't like how things are going, but what am I what am I to do? Any any advice you give to those people who have that leader? Definitely, remember the wonderful talk of the greatest leaders are the greatest followers. I love that; mm. it's such a great principle. And then understand well, what does it mean to be a great follower? When Christ was a follower of his heavenly Father, what did he do? How did he show up? How did he think? What was his way of obeying? And so there, there's a level of humility that goes on there because sometimes is subordinates or, you know, followers of leaders, we can kind of get ourselves in a place of pride where we go, I I know better than they do. I can see it, but let pride not prevail. So Mm -hmm. first of all, be, be humble and learn that. And then secondly, try to have empathy toward what might it be like to be in their shoes as the leader? What might you not be seeing? What, what data points do you not have visibility into? And when we have that empathy, then we can talk to them in a way that shares a commonality of care and of concern so that third, you challenge when you're humble first, you have empathy second, and then you challenge third, 
there's a receptive audience. But too often we jump to step three and we're just met with a brick wall Mm. or just with coldness where it's not really received and it's kind of defensive. But when you can help through a spirit of humility and then empathy, in essence, love, right? That's really the ingredient to all that. Then when you share, I feel like such and such isn't really going the way we'd like. Can I ask a question of maybe why this is the case? But see, if you've done steps one and two, then you have a receptive audience and you have a great conversation. And more often than not, they break down and go, I don't know what I'm doing. This is so scary. And, but too often as humans, we don't like to admit that we don't have it all figured out and yeah. that we have no clue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the truth is none of us has it all figured out and yeah. we don't have a clue and that's okay. Yeah. So I'd say again, overwhelming humility, empathy and love for the person, and then challenge to get to a next place with questions. I think yeah. questions are a better place versus, I think it should be that and demanding extract questions of how, what we would like it to be and what do we want it to feel like and look like. And that helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do see that leader, that CEO slip into that, that fear state, um, I mean, how do you get them out of that? And maybe it's several sessions before it happens, but yeah. like, where do you even begin to, cause I know there's leaders listening who are like, yeah, I am sort of acting from this place of fear, but what, I don't know. What am I supposed to do about it? Right. Uh, you know, it, it depends on each person in each scenario. Sometimes it's right away. Mm -hmm. We just have to do a knee-jerk pattern interrupt, something to get them. Other times it's slowly but surely and steadily, depending on the situation and the urgency and severity of what's going on. But overarching, there's a three R's that I coach in mindset to help people through it. And and it's these steps. If you're you're listening, write this down. If you're driving, don't. (laughs) But these three help a ton. One is recognition. You recognize. You recognize when you're off, mm. when you're just feeling your energy a little different, you're, you're scarce, you're fearful, you're hungry, you're tired, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. But when we recognize it, I believe that's 80% of the battle. Because as you mentioned, sometimes you can be spinning in fear, not even realizing it. And so how do you do that? Well, how happy am I right now? How fulfilled am I? How energetic am I? Do I feel like I'm just hanging on? And if any, if you answer yes to any of those questions, recognize there's something happening. Sometimes it's as simple as I need a Snickers because I'm hangry, right? I love that, that commercial with Betty White and all of a sudden she's so frustrated. Well, there's the recognition step that's not there and the friends throw the Snicker and they recognize for him. Perfect, right? (laughs) So we recognize. Then the second step is we replace. We intentionally replace the fear, the scarcity, the hunger, the need to be liked, whatever it is, with something powerful and positive, something faith-promoting. It could be a scripture. It could be a clear I am statement of your pure, true identity. It can be a verse of your favorite hymn, whatever it is. Then the third step comes to replace, uh, sorry, to recite. And what I mean by that is you actually recite your replacement statement out loud. Why? Because depending on the study you look at, the spoken word is 10 to 50 times more powerful than what we think. Mm. The problem is we're thinking on average 50,000 thoughts a day. We don't speak that much. And so our mathematical ratios are already a little bit off. Yeah. So if we want to eradicate that darkness or fear or whatever it may be, we've got to vocalize out loud. But it comes to the point where when people hear that, they go, well, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it is. uh At the same time, riddle me this. In our society, we beat on ourselves all the time in our minds. 
we're not kind to ourselves. We say we're stupid. We say, ah, oh, I should know better. And we just, we're masochistic. That's normal in our society. But as soon as we want to be positive out loud, that's weird. I think we need to check what's normal in society, in my opinion, and maybe push the envelope a little yeah. bit of what's normal to help us get to a place of much more positivity and power and faith to go help and, and lift and inspire other people. Because if we can't do that for ourselves, we can't lead other people. Yeah. No, I love those those three R's because they're so simple. It's like everybody could do it, but you know, it's like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> of course. And even just the, the recognition part, like just taking a breath and saying, huh, I'm in a place of fear. Not that you have to, that you should be, feel shameful that no. you're there. It's like, wow, that's where I'm at. Right. Like, I don't want to delegate that because I feel like that person's going to drop the ball. This activity is going to go wrong and I'm going to look bad. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so you just recognize it and just right. sit with it. And smile minute, with right? it and go, huh, interesting. Yeah. 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 And like, like the uh, recent podcast you had of on Saturday, what is it that you do before you, you just let Saturday be. Yeah. And when sometimes you're just frustrated, sometimes you're down and, and it's okay in that whole process versus no, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm a leader. No, it's okay. You try and run towards Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, yeah. just let it be. Yeah. And there are times where it's okay to be frustrated or fearful and, but acknowledging it is the key because too often our subconscious just kind of pushes it to the side and, and buries it really deep mm -hmm. and we don't even realize it's going on. Yeah. This concept of a replacement statement, what, what, what's maybe an example of a replacement statement a CEO may, may use? I love it. One of my clients, his replacement statement is, I am the CEO of a billion dollar company and his company right now is at about 50 million. Hmm. So he just lives into a future and realizes, okay, what needs to be true in order for me to live into that future? And it grounds him. Mine is a couple, I have a couple scriptures. When I was in Argentina, it was a particular hymn that anytime any impure thought came, anytime there was pornography on the street, I would go right to that hymn. Mm -hmm. And that was my replacement exercise to just get the darkness out and to not let those that thought be on the stage too long, mm -hmm. right? Other CEOs replacement statements are one that I love is I am patient, I am loving, and I am kind. Mm -hmm. And when he says that out loud, sometimes in the mirror, it reminds him that's it because that's something he's working on. And when he's not patient, when he isn't loving, and when he is unkind, he reminds himself, no, I, that's who I truly am. And I need to remind myself of that. Yeah. Just kind of shakes him out of it and helps him go, hmm, so what happened? Why did I let that happen? And I have the choice of how I'm going to respond to any situation. And I subconsciously responded in a way that I'm not happy with. I'm going to replace that. Yeah. And that's great. And, and I'm picking up that a lot of times these replacement statements are, there's some part of identity in them, right? Right. That anchors us to even, you know, I love it in, is it Moses 4 when yes. Moses being tempted yes. by the adversary and he simply says, I am a son of God. Yes. I, I'm laughing because literally I used that yesterday. You did? Yes, oh, wow. my client. And I should remember, we're all mortal, of course. And there's an adversary that's there and he wants to distract us and mm -hmm. wants us to, to think that we're less than we are. And God said multiple times, my son, my son my son. Uh -huh. And then as soon as the adversary comes in, Moses, son of man, wait, what? Yeah. And it's trying to distract him, of yeah. course, and just deflect what really is where his true source of power is. When we're true with that, it's great. And why, why is I am a child of God such a classic primary song? Because if you think about it, there's nothing more powerful 
just thinking about it gets yeah. me yeah. that way. There's nothing more powerful. Therefore, it's so easy to forget the truth of that statement. And the adversary is going to do everything he can to make us think we're, we're son of men, we're son of a woman. We're, we're not. Who are we? Mm-hmm. We are children of a loving heavenly father and a loving heavenly mother. That's who we are. And we have divine, infinite potential. And the adversary knows it. And God knows it. And it's up to us who we'll choose to respond to and answer the call. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And and also a theme I'm picking up with these replacement statements, sort of, it pulls everything back into context. Right. Or I can see like maybe an overwhelmed bishop could say, this is God's ward. It is not my ward. You know, reminding yourself of that, like, I'm going to let go of the fear because it's not my ward, it's God's ward. Yes. And you lean in with faith there, right? Right. And again, not that we, there's some magic phrase or whatever, but it would be an interesting activity to sort of sit with yourself and, and with God and say, you know, what, what could I draw upon? What statement to just help me pull out of this? Totally, you know? totally. And that is one of the, it's such a fun exercise. I highly recommend and invite everyone listening to, to look at what scripture, what hymn, what statement really connects with your spirit. Proverbs 3, 5, 6 is one for me that I love. I also love, look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. And when you say them out loud, it it literally, it's almost like this calm of like, okay, and context, perspective, especially when it's an an eternal perspective. But I believe, I I just wish everyone on the planet could do this exercise Mm -hmm. and really practice it. Because it's not a one and done thing. And a lot of times people say, I tried that, but it didn't work. Well, keep trying. Mm-hmm. If you want to create a great bicep or a six pack, you don't do one sit up and you don't do one curl. I've tried. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a consistent work over time, line upon line. It's a gospel principle yeah. that, that is true in this aspect as well. Yeah. And I, and I love this, the concept of reciting it out loud as well. Like that's, th- these three hours, like you can't skip one, right? right. You, you got to, um, but it's a, what a powerful exercise. And then, you know, obviously you're stating random things and <laughs> oh, the bishop was quiet over there. Now he's stating some, some statement. Um but again, I think that just, um, and that is, that's powerful. That's great. Let's see here. All right. Well, I guess I'll finally turn to your notes that you sent me or your, your, some of these potential principles. Well, this has been a great discussion so far. So, man, you, you put top of, top of the line here, inspired meetings. Everybody loves a good meeting, but few of us have been to one. So uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts when it comes to having inspired meetings? I purposely like to use that adjective before meetings inspired meetings, not just a meeting. Mm -hmm. Let's have an inspired and inspiring meeting. When you start from that mindset, you already create a different outcome versus, okay, here's the meeting. And, you know, the joke is the best meetings are no meetings. Or, you know, if if I I have to have a meeting, it's the worst. But in in the church, when we're working and coordinating, meetings are necessary. Mm -hmm. We we find that. But if they're going to be necessary, why not create an environment with meetings that literally transforms people? Yes, it's administrative, but it can also, meetings can also be administrative, where we invite people to come into Christ in the meeting, where the Spirit is so strong and so powerful that when we come out of the meeting, we're so energized and so ready to go serve and implement, we just can't wait, mm-hmm. versus, oh, I'm so glad that's over, I'm starving. Now I'm going to go finally get out of my Sunday clothes and I'm going to go get, you know, <laughs> watch TV or I'm going to be with my kids, whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the first step is frame the meeting from a place of inspiration and declare this is going to be a revelatory experience. The same way Elder Bednar did years ago of realizing anytime you're in any meeting, 
tell yourself this will and can be a revelatory experience, but it requires me to prepare accordingly beforehand and then ask the Lord during, what do I need to learn and how can I be a servant of you? And then go for it. Same thing with meetings. So as the leader, think, how can this be a revelatory experience and an inspiring meeting? Then mix it up. Too often, we actually, that's step three. Second step okay. is get clear on what is the purpose of the meeting uh-huh. and organize that accordingly because there are some leaders that are much more fluid with time. Mm-hmm. They're much more fluid with topics. Those that are fixed mindset, or, or sorry, fixed in time and are much more rigid with schedules, agendas, they go crazy if their leader is fluid with time. Yeah, and, and these are maybe the, the leaders as the two-hour council meeting Correct. or whatever, right? Correct, yeah. yes. So understand the purpose and what the agenda looks like. Then when Let we, me stop you there with purpose. Like people hear that and it's like, but the application sometimes misses. Like how would you coach somebody through recognizing the purpose of a meeting? Because a lot of teams are like, well, word council, we're here because the handbook says we should and we're going to talk about right. people. <laughs> so here we go. Yeah. How, how do we get there? Thank you for saying that because too often the purpose becomes the checkbox. Mm-hmm. We had the meeting done. Mm-hmm. But if we define the purpose of this is to, typically it's going back to the purpose of the ward. Maybe it's back to inviting others to come into Christ, the missionary purpose, whatever it is. To determine this meaning is a means to that end. Whatever that end is, declare that. And if it's ward council, as a ward council, council together to say, what do we want this meeting to be? What's the purpose of this? When we come, what do we want to accomplish? And how is this a means to that end accomplishment? So just having a council together, I think, is helpful. Mm-hmm. And then getting it clearly articulated and defined and having that purpose at the top of the notes to remind everybody every time we're together, remember, we're meeting and doing these administrative tasks. These are the means to this end pointing to the top of the agenda to remind ourselves that's why we're doing this. And then at the end, I like to ask, hey, did we accomplish this purpose or did we get closer to it? Instead of, okay, I got to go. See you later. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, oh man, I'm finally done. Yeah. And you just check off the box. So getting clear on that purpose. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. And you define that purpose with the Lord yeah. and determine what, what would he have us do and what, what is the spirit teaching us through this process? And ideally, when you're with multiple people, which you are in meetings, you co-create that purpose so that everybody has that way in so that there's mm-hmm. more buy-in. If you just as a leader say, okay, here's the purpose. It's better than not having a purpose, mm-hmm. but I think even even more powerful is when every contributor can have a say as to why this matters. Yeah. You just get people showing up differently. They own it more. They, they're more just on the edge of their seat versus just slouching, feeling tired and a little frustrated that they're yeah. not with their family or whatever else. And I would imagine the, the purpose of the meeting, obviously, because, you know, talking with CEOs, I would imagine like, well, the purpose of the meeting is to figure out what everybody else is doing or... The purpose of the meeting is so that the, we can figure out how to get the, make the company more revenue, right. right? There's sort of these these vague, arbitrary, uh, you know, purposes that aren't mm-hmm. don't really take us anywhere. And so, is it typically like with your is your coaching maybe a CEO through this? Are you should the purpose be about a certain activity? Like it should should it be very micro focused on something, or because sometimes the word council is like, well, this is the only time I have the bishops here, or right. <laughs> and I got this thing I got to talk about. The elders quorums have their thing they need to talk about. So it's easy to fall in that round robin for sure. tactic. So any other advice along those lines? Yeah, definitely. There are different meetings for different purposes. And I think that's important to distinguish. Mm-hmm. And that's tough when you only have one meeting with a bishop and this is the only time you have his ear, right? Yeah. 
But in a secular setting, I like to coach CEOs and help them realize there's a difference between a daily connection with someone versus a weekly operational meeting versus a monthly strategic meeting versus a quarterly planning meeting. Mm -hmm. Very different, different topics, different purposes. And when we try to mix them all together, we get nowhere and we feel frustrated and we don't feel there's a lot of traction. There's a great author and business leader out there named Patrick Lencioni that teaches this really well. I I really like his stuff. He teaches the concepts of meetings really well, in my opinion, and there are different purposes for different meetings. So now taking that into the church setting, there's a difference between ward council and youth committee. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between ward council and bishopric training, right? Depending on your your calling and, and who you have stewardship over. But understanding what that purpose is for that meeting, I think is important. And realizing different meetings have different purposes versus trying to cram it all in into one particular meeting. Because some are much more about, think about it. There's a reason why there's a welfare meeting. Yeah, That's much more around welfare. And you talk more specifically around that. You don't do that in all the other meetings, right? That's an example that I think is working fairly well, but I don't think we do it quite enough to separate what are topics that are really most appropriate in this particular meeting, given who's here yeah, and kind of creating that clarity. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. One thing that I'm learning through this discussion is that, you know, there may be the leader out there, say the Bishop who just doesn't like meetings and he knows other people don't like meetings. So let's keep it to a minimum. And we're going to meet as I think the handbook says meet regularly, but he's going to say regular means once a month for me. So we're going to have ward council once a month, but then when you don't create the space for individuals that who, you know, have questions or need discussion things, then then they feel like we can't have a purpose of the meeting because this is our only meeting so that we're going to have five purposes. And so that may be you have four ward councils during a month, but each one has a very different purpose and focus that gives space for these things to be digested, talked about, revelation to be received and so forth. Yeah, you nailed it. And it goes back to how we first started this part of the topic, and that is the modifier inspiring meetings. Mm-hmm. When we as the leader can't stand meetings, guess what? We're going to have really bad meetings. Yeah. And it's just a nuisance and we tolerate them because we just have to get some of the coordination done. If we can soften our hearts and realize that meetings can truly be a medium to invite people to come unto Christ and the spirit can be very, very powerfully present, meetings become a joy. And they become something that really enables people to learn by and with and from the spirit to then when you're done, it's, it's, it's uplifting, it's magnifying. It's something that wants us, we just want to be better, you know, but if the leader has the mindset that leading the meetings are the worst, which by the way, I raised my hand. I've been that lead, <laughs> that person many years, as we said earlier, I have never been diagnosed, but I believe I do have ADD and I lose focus really quickly and meetings are really hard for me. And my wife Mm -hmm. will laugh and kind of nudge me and like, (laughs) you know, sometimes I lose my focus. Yeah. But when I switched my mindset around leading meetings, that it's inspiring people and inviting them to come into Christ, I had a totally different awakening and I repented of that thought and of that feeling. And since I've been in meetings and led different meetings, it's a really powerful, joyful experience that I thought I would never say that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I want to just go get the work yeah. done. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And this sort of relates to the three R's concept is like when you walk into a meeting, especially as the leader, like kicking off the, the yes. meeting with, with first recognizing what this meeting is. Like I want this meeting to be an inspired meeting, right? And, and take a breath, sit with that thought 
and, and maybe there's a, a statement, right, that, yes. that to get everybody in the mind frame, but then, then turn to the council, which is so hard to do because I remember walking those meetings with a laundry list of things I want to get through. Right. We got an hour, but like creating that space, turning to the ward council and saying, how can we do that today, right? Yes, yes. Now, in perfect world, hopefully, you know, you've been praying about this meeting for five days leading up to it and maybe fasting. I mean, but a lot of times it's like, oh, I'm five minutes late for ward council. You know, I, here we are. All right. Who's first? So like, true. Let's have a prayer. All right. Give us a spiritual thought. Too long. All right. right. Um, but like creating that space, it's sort of like inviting that inspiration there and then turning to the council mm-hmm. saying, how are we going to do that? And then it's a unified effort. Totally. Right? Totally. Yeah. And the spirit is the one that is really leading it. Just like prayer. The true order of prayer is when the spirit leads our prayer. Mm-hmm. The true order, in my opinion, of a, of, a, of a great meeting is when the Spirit leads that meeting. But that can't happen if we're approaching meetings from a place of disdain and, and frustration and all the other words that I used yeah. to use for meetings. Uh, <laughs> right. I, you know, it's, it's, I think it's worthy of its own topic in and of itself of how, how do you tactically do that? What's a structure to do that? Because, man, it can be tough. But the other thing I was going to share before, then if it's a routine meeting, mix it up. Mix up who's doing what share roles, let some other people lead sometimes, let them coordinate a particular ask. Otherwise you just kind of get in your rut and in your lane and you sit and you just, we become creatures of habit and it's the same old, same old. But when you have someone who's maybe a timekeeper or someone who is in charge of for this month, what's the spiritual thought and theme we want around that? Just kind of, everyone has genius. Try and find the genius of everybody in that room and then spread the love. And the more that people can lift and lead, the more they're going to really be more present in that meeting versus, okay, here it is again. Because mm-hmm. you just you do, you get in a routine, especially when you start to get the hang of things. And it kind of feels good because you're finally out of the place of, oh, good, at least I know what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but then the danger is you get in a comfort zone. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else as far as inspired meetings that we haven't touched on yet? I would love to be in a meeting that the Savior led. Can you imagine? Yeah. It would just, be awesome. and you would leave that meeting inspired, wanting to be better. And he's, he's just, he's the ultimate, he's the ultimate leader. He's the ultimate listener. He's, he's the ultimate follower. And I would, I can't wait to be in a meeting with him again. I know I have been, and I, I, I really hope to lead that way. And I want all of us listening to think, how would the savior lead a meeting and how can I emulate that behavior? Yeah. Yeah, when I think about the Savior leading meetings, usually they were they were walking somewhere. Yeah, they were <laughs> um, definitely. <laughs> other than maybe the Last Supper, where you know there's a lot of teaching and that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a, that's a thought to to sit with for sure. All right, uh, in, inspiring people. Oh boy, where where do we start with this? Because <laughs> a lot of leaders are going, oh, I got a list of people who need to be inspired. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, I love this topic. Inspiring people is all rooted in love simply put. And I like to ask leaders when they're frustrated with their people in a secular setting or a spiritual setting, it doesn't matter. When you're frustrated with the people that you're leading and they're not X and they're not Y and they're not doing Z, I love to just ask the question, how have I as the leader contributed to that behavior? Hmm. Instead of pointing the finger, instead of being frustrated with their incompetence or, or their lack of buy-in or whatever it is, I like to ask, how have I contributed? Ultimately, as the leader, it's on you. And that's hard to grasp sometimes, and it's hard to even say, because there are legitimate times when people are just aren't showing up. 
mm-hmm. aren't doing what they said they would Especially do. Especially in a volunteer organization. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I go to how can I create an environment where they feel inspired versus required? How can I help them want to versus have to? And it comes down to love for that individual of what truly motivates and inspires them. And don't assume that we know what that is. When we really understand what makes someone tick, the more that we can lead and inspire. And a mantra that I've loved to live with for the last many decades is, if I don't like someone, I don't know them well enough yet. And it's a simplified version of other quotes that are out there, but I'm a very simple person. (laughs) I can remember this. But anytime that I've been bothered by someone, I have to stop and go, I I don't know their story well enough yet. And as soon as I spend the time to really understand who they are and they feel heard and they feel cared for and cared about, then I go, oh, that's why. You respond this way because as a kid, X, Y, and Z happened to you. Oh, and then I have total empathy and love and it's all good. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of let it, you know, gloss over versus getting really frustrated and stuck on why do they do that? Why do they say they'll do this, but then they don't? Yeah. Well, because they're really scared that, to, of letting anybody down. So they're going to say they'll do yes to, say yes to everybody. Yeah. And then they let everybody down in this, this vicious cycle. Then I know where to coach and how to help them. Yeah. It, it's really is, you know, the concept of, of empathy and, and how Brene Brown talks about that everybody really is doing the best they can, right. you know, and, right. and if you really believe that and sit with that, like suddenly you have so much patience for where people are at. And we have a habit, it's a human nature to project our thoughts, attitudes, approaches, skill level on everybody else and saying like, well, if I was in that calling or in that position, I would do A, B, and C. It's so obvious. Why don't they see it and just do it? Totally. Totally. Um, I, I had a leader that I worked with one time. His name is Garrett. He was amazing at getting to know the deep story of everyone on his team. And people would always say, how does he get people to do what they do? And how do they work longer hours and how do they always hit their goals? And he, his way of leading is just so, let's just call it weird. It's just weird. What, what does he do? And all he would do is, well, I shouldn't say all, but right, what right, he would, sure. what he, as if it wasn't very much, but what he would do was get really clear on what truly motivated that individual. What made them tick? Where were they going and why? And then ask their permission to hold them accountable to get to that destination. And they loved it. Because they knew he cared about their need and he would do all sorts of things that were totally atypical, totally off the wall, but in a way that the person knew, man, he's got my back. And so when it was time to level up the, the numbers or do something new, honestly, he would speak and they, he'd say jump and they'd say how high, the classic cliche. I've never seen anyone do it like this person. Wow. Why? Because he learned how to love each in person individually because love is a very individual language. It's why the Savior is so masterful at it. He knows us all so personally and so perfectly that he knows how to inspire us like nobody else because he knows us so personally because he suffered for each of us so personally. It's why he's the master leader. I love thinking of that topic and that's how you inspire people. Yeah. It's about them, not us. Yeah. You know, I, I have this, uh, this concept I wrote a whole book about ministering, like how to lead the ministering effort, hmm. right? And I have this concept in here, and and I feel like I'm the only person in the world that believes this, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm willing to die on this hill. But I talk about when I was Elder Scorn president, I saw it as my only job, my primary job to do every last single ministering interview, right? And 
And people are like, no, well, wait a minute. No, it says you can split them up and the counselors. I'm like, I know what it says. But my only job is to do every last ministering interview. And I give different tactics and, and ways that uh, to actually do that. And every, you know, I've done the numbers. This will work, right? I delegated everything. And people are just like, well, why would you do that? Because you can use your counselors. Like that's so much to do. Like, yeah, but you need to understand when you sit down with somebody on a regular basis and engage with them on a one-to-one level and you win them over as their leader, like they feel like my leader knows me and I, we're almost friends. Like that will do more for your leadership than, than anything. I mean, you, you're looking for motivation, inspiration, like it's right there, like getting to the point where you've heard their story, you've cried with them, right? And I remember I did this back when I was the uh, high priest group leader, way back when that was a thing. And I, I remember having these, you know, I, I was 26 years old as a high priest group leader. I had, <laughs> I had men in there, they're in their 60s, old enough to be my dad, right? That's amazing. Opening up and like weeping with me because their son doesn't want them in their life or they were struggling paying tithing, right? Mm-hmm. But that would have never happened if I didn't lay the groundwork. So when I get pushback on that principle, like, no, Kurt, like, that's crazy. You should, I'm like, listen, I'll die on this hill. When I'm a leader- I'm engaging one-to-one with my people as much as possible. You figure out elders quorum lesson. You figure out, you know, the computer assigning of ministry. I'm going to sit with my people. And it really has a transformational way to inspire people. I totally agree. I totally agree. And and it's, it's tough, tough to do. That takes, that takes a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of investment and a lot of emotional investment to make that happen. But I agree. I think when people really feel heard and loved it's amazing that the impact that has on behavior mm-hmm. and inspiring people. Yeah. And it is, you know, and you know, we're, we're, I never intend to throw leaders under, under the bus by any means, but more often than not, I hear people say, I've never had a ministering interview rather than, well, they do it, but it, you know, like people just want to be sat with, be heard, and then they'll do anything, right. you know, and, right. and that, but it is hard. It is. And it's awkward at times. Right. For like, sure. Didn't we just meet like, yeah. And I'm here again. <laughs> so let's talk about your hobbies. All right, you know, and uh, it's, it's awesome for sure. Anything else as far as with inspiring people? You mentioned, you know, leading out of fear, duty, or love, how to skip fear and duty and lead with love. I mean, you maybe touched on that, but. Yeah, we did a little bit, but, you know, those are the three ultimate motivators in that order, fear and then duty and then love. And the clearer we can get on our true motive and the faster we can get to love and skipping fear and duty, the better. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in in the church, duty is is more often than not. If if we were to break those up in percentage wise, I would say duty's probably sixty percent, and fear is maybe fifteen percent, and and love ideally is maybe twenty five percent. Maybe I'm off. That's how a leader t- typically approaches leading. Is typically that okay. Uh-huh. And that's just from my perspective. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm in no it's way no saying research that that's study. accurate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because I, I just, and you can hear it in language, you can hear it in, in behavior. And you may have just said, did you just hear, say hear behavior? Yes, you can hear behavior. Mm-hmm. There, there's, you know, you, you listen with your ears, but mostly you listen with your eyes and with your heart. And when we can listen to behavior from a place of what's the, what's the mode of happening here, just watch. And, and when we do very often, it's, we got to get this done because we, and it, there's a lot of duty. And well, I, I, I was told I need to get this done. And so here I am. And, you know, I'm, I'm being faithful and I'm not knocking that. I mean, that it's, we're doing it and mm-hmm. we're getting paid nothing monetarily. And it is a volunteer organization, but as soon as we can find 
where love can be the motivator in any task, in any meeting, in any administrative or administrative responsibility that we have, the better. That is the ultimate driver. That's sustainable. That is enriching. That's nourishing. That is energizing because it's all about love for whom? For the Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And when that is our ultimate motive in leading, it's awesome. And we don't get as tired and we get a little bit more energized. But when it's out of duty and out of fear, that's where we get really broken down. We get super exhausted. Sundays become just more than we can bear because we're just back to back administering. And when love is at the pure core, it can be more energizing. I'm not saying you still won't be tired. Right, right. I think you, you might be, but I, I would contest that I think you're going to be much more energized and happy when love is the ultimate motive in everything that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that sort of using it as a model of sort of analyzing where you're at, what you're feeling as a leader at the end of a Sunday Yeah. or, you know, at, at the end of a, a busy season or whatever and and seeing that thing okay i feel this way and does that reflect anything of how i'm leading is it out of duty is it out of fear or is it more love and maybe i can adjust that mm-hmm. a little bit but then i mean like you said fear strong i mean definitely it dominates definitely sure. the helium principle <laughs> i'm sure that just wrap this up in a few minutes would you would you Jeff? so what's the helium principle well the helium principle I, I call that in leading the youth in this day and age. I guess always, but in particular in the battalion that President Nelson has created and mm. led masterfully. Mm-hmm. I love him. I I love when he inspires and invites us to literally stand and to be a part of this battalion and to be a part of the restoration this way and be a part of just gathering Israel. I, I think it's amazing. I think where adults can miss the mark sometimes with youth is not viewing the youth the way that Helaman saw the youth. And if you look at Helaman, how he operated in Alma, in, in particular chapter 56, and how he led the Stripling warriors, I've l- looked at this many, many, many times. And I, I love these statistics. I'm kind of a, a geek with numbers and that's okay. And uh-huh. I, I did statistics with the scriptures. He refers to the Stripling warriors, from my knowledge, 22 different times. Every time that he refers to them, He never once says kids, children, boys. He has a vision of them and for them. And you can see it in his language. Of the 22 times, 12 times he calls them sons. And then nine times he calls them young men. Four times he calls them men. And one time he calls them stripling warriors. Actually, he doesn't say stripling warriors. He says stripling Ammonites. And we have, as a culture, called them stripling warriors, right? And they're called warriors in other places. I think it's fascinating. And the more that I've led youth and the more that I've tried to implement that, I've really questioned and pondered and prayed, what's what's happening here? And I believe what's happening is he's not seeing kids. He's not seeing boys, though they were. He's seeing husbands and fathers. He's seeing community members. He's seeing valiant sons of God. And he therefore speaks to them that way. He thinks of them, first, he thinks of them that way. He speaks to them that way. He prays about them that way. And therefore, he leads them that way. And what happens? They rise. Mm -hmm. They rise to the occasion every time because of his vision and his love for them versus, oh, well, they're not quite capable. They're kids. How often do we talk about the youth as saying the kids 
all the time. It, it happens all the time. Yeah, even in uh, in young single adult wards. Right, it's right, like exactly. those kids, like, no, he's 27 right, years old. Right. And when we view them that way, we're going to get them that way. And, and this was no truer for me than when I was a scout master for years, which I loved. And if any of my scouts are listening right now, you know I love you. I do. I truly do. And what, what I learned was when they led and I advised, it worked. But too often as adults, we say, ah, they're 12. They're 13. They can't do that. They're just not capable. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you're right. But if we say they are capable, then we're right. And so what I had to do over time was realize I have to think of them that way. And literally, I would envision them. Man, every time I think of this, I get emotional. I would envision them on the streets of Bogota or in Boise or being husbands and fathers. And I would see them yeah. 10 years in the future. And when I would pray about them that way and then ask the Lord to help me see them that way, I spoke to them differently. And I tried the Helaman principle over and over, starting with my thoughts and with my language. And then as I talked to them and we would talk about where we were going, what we're going to accomplish, and we would delegate, they rose to the occasion every time. It was amazing to see how they would communicate, how they would delegate, how they would organize, how they would take charge, all because... I tried to just follow what Helaman did. Now, I don't want anyone listening to think I, I have it all perfect and I've, I never messed up. Of course <laughs> I messed up. And of course I was frustrated. And of course I lost my patience. But when it went the best is when I followed the Helaman principle and viewed them for who they could become and saw them the way the Lord saw, could see them and then spoke to them accordingly and just let language create a future that they just naturally stepped into because they were totally capable, the exact same way the Stripling Warriors did with Helaman. And look at it. Go look at the scriptures in in Alma 56 and and 57 and notice how he talks about them. Hmm. It's amazing. And you can just feel his love and his respect and admiration for them. It's no question why they created the miracles that they did because they had a leader who saw them the way God sees them. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I, th- I think there's maybe in a future podcast episode where we can dig into that, but love that. That's awesome. Anything else we're, we're missing before I ask you a few more questions? Any principle or thought that's come to mind that... Uh... I just, I think it's important that as leaders, we recognize nobody has it figured out. And to feel that you are incapable at times, to feel beneath the call, that's normal. We just don't talk about it. And we just kind of put on a front, especially in the church, that, oh, that's all good. I've got it figured out. No, you don't. And it's yeah. okay. And we, we're all struggling and it's, it's good. And sometimes having a little bit of vulnerability as a leader is really powerful. Now, there's a vulnerability and then there's vulnerability. I'm not saying always being vulnerable, <laughs> but I am saying don't, don't never. And yes, I just had a double negative. <laughs> don't never be vulnerable because it, I think when we are vulnerable as a leader, it actually instills trust. It doesn't repel trust. And when there's more trust in the in the room, we can all lean into being the best version of ourselves because of the principle of yeah. humility that comes with that. That's interesting because I imagine, you know, working with CEOs, when you get to the level of CEO, you kind of feel like, well, I don't think I need a coach. But mm-hmm. as you've probably seen every day, that they really do need a coach. Right? Definitely. And in my opinion, the most powerful CEOs are the ones that combine humility with courage and with vision to always get better, mm-hmm. always grow. And there are some CEOs who say, I don't need a coach. And if, if someone has a coach, they're weak. And there are other CEOs who say, 
in order to continue to maintain and sustain the energy and the vision that I have and to get to where I need to go, I need someone to hold me accountable. I need someone to help me. And of course, the latter is the client that I attract and I work with, the former. I say, I love you. And in time, maybe we'll work together. But if not, not right now, because yeah. that's just not helpful for anybody. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, being an executive coach, like obviously a state president is put in a position where he has to sort of coach bishops or a right. bishop is put in place where he's coaching Relief Society presidents, Elder Scorn presidents. And I realize this probably deserves its own 60-minute episode, but give us some hard and fast rules or if you were in an elevator with a bishop and you just needed to give him some quick advice as far as how to coach another leader, because it's easy to fall into the, uh, well, this is what I did, right. so maybe you should do what I did, right? But any, any advice there on how to be a good coach? Definitely. See the infinite worth and value of the individual that you're working with and talking to and make it a game to extract that genius because it's all in them. All of it is. And we are all divine and we have divine potential and opportunity. Too often we don't see it. We see it in others way easier than we see in ourselves. And so I believe the role of a coach, spiritually or secularly, is to extract that divine genius and greatness of that person through inspired questions, through love unfeigned, through patience, through all the Christ-like attributes. I, I love Preach My Gospel chapter six, like really tap into that and find where those are in each person because they are. And there's a reason why in missionary work, we are counseled and coached and taught how to ask inspired questions because the spirit is the greatest teacher. And all the spirit's doing is bringing to our remembrance the divinity from within. Yeah, And that's to me what coaching is. Oh, I love that. I love that. Because we kind of get in the, the greeny mentality, like, oh, there's a brand new bishop, like I need to really help him and sort of download his information, but to make it a game of extracting the genius that's in him. And, you know, that just further instills confidence so that they need less coaching or less, you know, prescription from you right. as the higher up leader, right. because they believe, start to believe in that genius. Totally. And they rely on the source of their power, yeah, not on the source of humankind. Although helpful, don't don't get me wrong. There are things that we can help as as human beings, but man, we all have this amazing coach from within the Holy Ghost and having the gift of the Holy Ghost with us and knowing that the Godhead is behind us and with us. That's the true art, I believe, of coaching and helping people see that because their confidence is stronger. They're able to really work through and go through going through the three R's you better believe they'll be able to do that all the time because it's within them. Yeah. Instead of, oh no, I need to talk to so-and-so because I'm not sure how to do this. Well, ask, inquire, ask inspired questions. It's there. And the Lord and the Spirit will guide you every step of the way through that process. And that's the beauty of, I believe, what the Lord is trying to teach us. Why? Because we're all learning to become God someday anyway. And the sooner we can learn some of these principles, the more we can affect and bless more of his children on this earth. That's the fun of everything. Yeah. And why life, I believe, is such miracle and why it's just so worth continuing to strive. And when I was diagnosed with cancer years ago, that gave me my true reckoning of why am I here? What am I doing? And I realized I'm here to invite people to come into Christ. And any opportunity I have to do that, I will take advantage of that. Ideally, there are many times when I haven't, and I go, dang it, I missed that. But that's what I'm striving for every time. And if anyone who's listening who may feel maybe distant from Christ, I just want to invite you to come closer to him and do one thing today 
to grow closer to him. Maybe watch a YouTube video on the church's website. Maybe read a scripture, but man, he's there and he's real and he loves you and he loves me. And I love trying to be like him and testifying of him that he's real and that he lives and that he loves us. And the more that we can have that personal relationship with him, the more life is manageable and doable. And then we can lead other people. Yeah. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> so I have one more question for you, but if, if there is a CEO listening or and wants to get involved with what you do and your coaching, or I mean, do you really only coach CEOs or, or what's, where would you send people and maybe how would you, how would they qualify if they should even reach out to you? Yeah. Thank you. I, I do coach CEOs specifically and exclusively with this exception. The executives that I coach are executives that CEOs who I'm coaching have said, can you coach so-and-so on my team as well? Okay. Right. So if, if someone who is an executive leader comes and says, hey, will you coach me? I typically will say no, unless there's something spiritual going on where I feel there's something going on. There's been an exception or two, but for the most part, I purposely and exclusively focus on CEOs for the impact that they have. And then if people are, are interested or looking, my website is maskprinciples.com. I coach on mindset, action, spirituality, and kindness, mask principles. Does that say on your birth certificate as well? I know. <laughs> your last name is that acronym. There's a story behind that as okay. well. Or jeffmask.com, same, same place. Uh-huh. But really, I'm not necessarily looking to grow and have more clients. I'm at capacity right now, and I'm happy with that. What I'm looking to do is bless lives in any way that I can. Sometimes that's through coaching. Sometimes that's through a podcast. Sometimes it's through service, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel blessed to have been given extra chances at life. And I want to make the most of that. And I want to live every moment intentionally and give thanks to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ for that. And it sounds cliche, but it's true. Yeah. And I'm just grateful to be alive. Awesome. Last question I have for you is, has you've had opportunity to be a leader and, or to coach leaders How has uh, being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, I love that. Going back to the previous answer, when you said, how would a particular follower right now who's not really, you know, keen on how the leader's leading, how would they do that? Those three steps I shared were from my personal experience of Mm -hmm. learning. How can I humbly approach the situation? Look in the mirror and see how I can be better and and instead of, I know better. And so eradicate pride and, and let humility reign then have empathy of figuring out what might it be like. And so I practice this all the time. And anytime I was led by a leader that I was bugged with or bugged by or something was happening, I'd ask the question, what might I not be seeing? Because I've led enough to know there's probably data points that I don't see. Be aware of that and be empathetic of that. And then lead through questions as I'm asking. As I did that, that was a really powerful recipe to help any leader that I was following to just create a better leadership experience. Cause I believe everybody's a leader. You don't have to have a title to be a leader. And when we can exercise those three steps, we can create any outcome in a totally different way versus, well, I'm not the leader. I'm going to throw up my hands. This is frustrating. And then justify why we can just bicker and be frustrated about it versus changing it and being a true change agent in that, in that environment. So I got to do that many times and I'll continue to, I, I, I actually like being a follower. It's really fun. And I found that when you can make following or followership a sport, it becomes amazing. And we lift our leaders when we become amazing followers. 
And that concludes my interview with Jeff Mask. Sure appreciate his knowledge, his perspective, some of these tactics. I mean, the three R's. I mean, these are simple exercises that once implemented could really make a difference. And I'd love to hear from individuals out there who maybe try some of these things and and let me know the impact they had. Jeff is phenomenal. We had a great discussion. Even the discussions after we after we stop recording are, are, are always fantastic. And I hope to involve Jeff in the future. If there's specific questions or concepts that you'd like to hear more from Jeff about, let us know and uh, we'll make sure he hears about those. Now, if again, like I said, shout out to Landon. This is episode that came to be because somebody connected me with somebody else. And so if you know of a phenomenal leader, please reach out and go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and let me know. I realize many of you listening thinking, well, yeah, I did that and I haven't heard my guy on the podcast yet. And uh, please know that we're actually working on some more systematized approaches to uh, make sure we get to make room for these many recommendations we've had, but we're always just looking for more and and uh, that would be awesome. So go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.